Hello and welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here and we're so glad that you're here. We use our mojo to really become greater leaders. Now, let's get started by listening to something good. Hey everyone, Steve here, and I want to invite you to go to Mojo University and check out uh, all of the great things that we're doing. That's mojouniversity.com. I promise you, if you go there and you sign up and you start learning, you're going to love the training that we provided for you. It's there to help, mojouniversity.com. Hello and welcome everyone to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve Caldwell here, and I'm thrilled to introduce my special guest today, Mr. Ron Carucci. Now, Ron is co-founder and managing partner at Navalent. Uh, he works with CEOs and executives where it, they pursue transformational change. Uh, he's got a 30-year track record of helping some of the world's most influential executives ta tackle their challenges. He's done everything from startups to Fortune 10s, uh, turnarounds, and so forth. And he's worked more in more than 25 countries, four continents. And if he didn't have enough to do, he's also the best-selling author of not one, not two, but eight books, including his last one, Rising to Power, which uh, rose to number one on Amazon. He's a regular contributor to HBR and Forbes and has been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week. You kind of get the idea. He's, he understands what he's doing. Ron, welcome to the Manager Mojo Show. Steve, it's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, and I look forward to talking about uh, leadership and your ideas and, uh, and thoughts in just a minute. But before we do that and get started, why don't you share with our listeners what fun thing that you've been up to lately outside of work? Gosh, it's, well, it's, you know, it's autumn here in the North Pacific Northwest, which we don't usually get much of an autumn usually, unlike you know, your listeners who may be in other parts of the country that get four seasons. But we had a little bit of an extended summer, and we love to spend our time on the lake, so I've been able to get out there on the lake and relax. Um, and uh, as of recent, my wife and I are official empty nesters, so we, uh, um, before they changed their mind, we went off to, uh, on a wonderful vacation in the Baltics for a few weeks. Uh, so I'm awesome. still feeling the uh, the joy of that. <laughs> awesome. That's so much fun. And uh, to, to be in that position, I know uh, I was there long before you. So I'm glad that, that uh, you're enjoying that empty nest syndrome and having fun. So thanks for being with us today. And Ryan, as we start talking about uh, leadership and the, the, the issues that you've discovered in your research and that's caused you to write all these books, uh, I, I would appreciate it if, uh, first. Why don't you just uh, share with uh, our listeners what your uh, research has shown 
to be the greatest leadership fear that people have? What holds them uh, back? So fear, that's an interesting question, Steve. You know, I, uh, in our recent research for Rising to Power, uh, um, power <laughs> turns out, you know, when we dissected it, we had more than 2,700 interviews that we had. Uh, and then we, in addition, we isolated about 100 leaders in mid-ascent uh, on their way up to broader leadership roles to understand why is it that for 20 years we've known and been okay with the fact that more than 50% of them fail in the first 18 months. That's terrible, and isn't it? It's, the carnage is, and the wreckage of families, careers, opportunities, it's terrible. And I, I thought when it, when it got personal for me when a client called who had been you know, seen as high potential and very promising, taken up after one of our transformational initiatives, taken on a, a broader role that everybody assumed he would be, he would be brilliant in, and nine months in, he'd been fired. And I was devastated, and I thought, this, this just makes no sense. We could not have all misjudged his potential that greatly. We've got to do better. And so we went back into his organization to investigate what could have gone wrong here, and that led us to a 10-year longitudinal study of more than 2,700 folks to find out what is going on here. So that's the context for your question around. So when we isolated the dimension of power, how do people, women and men, as they rise up, handle the, the issue of power? Of course we thought we would find all the typical abuses of power for self-interest and self-indulgence, sometimes for immorality. Um, and indeed, those were there. But by far, the greater abuse of power was not for self-interest, but it was abandonment. It was people too fearful of using the power that came with their role, so simply choosing not to use it at all. Um, wow. And that was a shock to us, um, because if you think about the implications of people stepping up into bigger roles that have disproportionate levels of possible influence over an organization, choosing not to use it, um, it's a pretty staggering sense of, of, of inertia you get. Um, or doling out way too many yeses to please people and therefore diluting the resources and focus of a lot of people, um, or too afraid to make hard decisions, um, or too afraid to stick, put a stake in the ground on a priority. You think about the, the organizational injustices that could be righted with that power that go unaddressed and therefore a prolific sense of unfairness um, perpetuating itself. There's so many... Um, disease states that result from leaders choosing to avert their own power. Um, I, I did, that was something I just didn't expect to see. Well, uh, I, I get it. Uh, I think uh, uh, for, for me, I, I actually am not at all surprised by this. Uh, and it's primarily because I've, I think that I've, I've been uh, around so many different leaders over the years and and seeing this, and of course on uh, the Manager Mojo show, we've really talked a lot about what what causes the problem. But but I have to tell you, I, it, it, it's awesome that you have done the research to actually put the numbers behind it. Uh, because I've often thought that uh, when people get these positions, uh, it, it, it comes from a, a place uh, of insecurity. Uh, they they kind of are living a, uh, a, a, a hypocritical life. They're really not sure they know what they need to do. Is, it, is that a fair way to say it? I think I don't know an executive uh, that rises to the top that doesn't have some form of imposter syndrome, some sense of I got to fake it till I make it, or some sense of oh my gosh I'm going to be found out. 
Yeah. Um, and it's not, they're not intentionally being deceptive. Um, they're just terrified. Um, and, uh, and so they unfortunately put disproportionate levels of effort into keeping up a front of confidence. They feel like they have to be the answer ATM for people when they ask questions. They feel like people expect things of them. I'm laughing um, because I, I know that feeling. <laughs> and, and so they, 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 people, they, people, and the research showed this, that people, these leaders, pe- more people ascribe power to them than they thought they had themselves. And it's very anxiety-producing for a leader who feels like they're meant to be perfect um, and, you know, the other compounding factor in, in this leadership environment, leaders start distrusted, right? We've had so much leadership failure so in so many factors of our life that leaders start distrusted with an inverted sense of much higher expectations than are realistic. You should be accessible 24-7. You should read my mind and inspire me. You should include me in every decision you make and make me feel good about that. You should make sure I'm developing in my career. Um, you should make sure that um, I never have to worry about the future. You know, so the unrealistic expectations of leaders because of the degree to which they have failed makes new leaders feel like they actually have to live up to those expectations, right, which nobody can. So they start with a sense of being behind the eight ball in the leadership red, if you will, right. and it gets worse from there unless they get a handle on that and realize I need to reset and calibrate what it is you think I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. And so you're pretty clear on what you can expect of me, and you need to know what it is I expect of you. But so many leaders don't have the mojo mm-hmm. to um, to do that. No, they they don't. And uh, to me, it it uh, I, this this is my philosophy. I'd like to know your comments and your thoughts on it. And that is that uh, it, it seems to me that uh, too many leaders or pos- people in position of leadership uh, have have really never. Uh, thought through the best way to make decisions and how important decisions are to their success. Is that a fair statement? It's a, absolutely. Of the, so in our research, uh, the one um, wonderful surprise was we were able to isolate the thing. So if 50% of them or so were failing in the first 18 months, what were the other 50% doing? Uh, that caused them to thrive, people who could actually rise up, stick the landing, and flourish uh, at the, at the, in the broader roles of enterprises. Well, we were able to isolate four, what was, was staggering no matter how we cut the data up, four recurring patterns consistently floated to the top of what separated the failures from the successes. Um, and my problem was I didn't want to write that you had to be good at all four of them, so I kept having them do another regression analysis to see if I could get... <laughs> Could I say three out of four? And the fun of the team, we, we got to use a, a you know we got to use IBM Watson and some great AI tools cool. for it. And the, the team came back and said, "It's not going to change. This is the answer. I don't, you may not like it, but this is the answer." And one of those four patterns was choice: how they constructed decisions, what, the right data, the right the right intuition, the right voices of others, the right commitment to making hard calls. Um, they were great choice makers um, awesome. versus the ones that couldn't make a decision, got too immersed in it in data and became a- analysis paralysis, or were too many cow- too much cowboy and did it all, all on instinct on their own and didn't include others, or some bad combination of those, and never knowing which, which combination of data, intuition, and others to include when, um, they made, bad, made choices. So, but choice making was indeed one of the four things 
that set the greater leaders apart. Why don't you, uh, that's awesome to hear. And uh, what I'd like to hear, if you don't mind, just go ahead and tell us what the other three were. Yeah. Uh, so that we can kind of get those in our brain today. We were, um, and you know, we, we assumed that we'd hit a nerve, but uh, when we wrote the research up for Harvard Business Review, we were named one of 2016's Ideas That Mattered Most. Very humbled by that honor. Hundreds of thousands of people, we just, we just clearly hit a nerve when people read the, about these four patterns, kind of had this, yes, that's what it looks like for great executives to do great leadership. So the first was context, right? So, so many leaders rise to the top, they're not prepared to read the environment around them. They don't know how their business makes money. They don't know how they differentiate. They don't know what makes them competitively viable. They don't know what trends are coming down the pike. But these exemplars were contextually intelligent. They knew their audience. They knew um, how, to, how to adapt themselves to the, to the challenges at hand. They knew how to read the challenge as well. They didn't become so internally or politically mired that they just ignored it. They really read context well. The second one was breadth. So, you know, mostly as they rise up, rise up through a function, they rise up through a particular business. But the game at the top is no longer, you know, if you grew up in finance, having a purely economic lens doesn't help. If you grew up in marketing, having a purely consumer lens doesn't help. You now have to see how all the pieces fit together. You have to know that the value you create is at the seams, right? It's at the intersection of marketing and R&D and sales. You get great innovation. It's at the intersection of supply chain logistics and operations where you get great cost management and efficiencies. Mm-hmm. And so it's managing the intersections of those capabilities. And these leaders had great understanding of the full story of the organization. Uh, and then the last one was called connection. So these are the leaders everybody wanted to be around. They had phenomenal relationships between uh, with their bosses, their peers, and their direct reports. They could adjust those. You know, so when they rise up, their former bosses are now peers. Their former peers are now direct reports. Um, and so they could make those adjustments elegantly. And most importantly, uh, they worked hard at understanding who their most important stakeholders were and prioritizing those relationships over others. And their, their clear distinguishing focus was making other people successful. The, the two things people said about these leaders consistently was, I know I was important to them, mm-hmm. and I knew... Uh, that uh, they saw potential in me I didn't see in myself, and they wanted to help me succeed. Um, so, as you can see, you know, connection, choice, context, and breadth for pretty major muscle groups to have to master and to have to say you've got to be good at all of them uh, was a tough thing to swallow. But if you think about the failure rates being high, it's because even being good at three out of four of them costs you to fail. Um, the great discovery for us, Steve, was you can learn them. They're not some mysterious pixie dust get, that gets sprinkled over you or some mysterious attributes that somehow some are born with and some are not. You can learn them all. You should begin to learn them all long before you hit your first senior assignment. Um, Absolutely. But the people who did learn them and were thriving at the top because they had learned them had begun to learn them much earlier in their career than others. I, I totally uh, agree, and I'm glad your research uh, has shown that. I've been uh, saying for many years that, because uh, one of the things that uh, that I've kind of specialized in my own career is that I've uh, done a lot of behavioral uh, research and really understanding how people are hardwired. And, and they keep, uh, people keep looking for what I call the unicorn. Uh, they think that uh, the unicorn is somebody that was born to do all of this stuff and that they, they just know it because they were born to do it. 
And there are so many uh, examples uh, primarily put forth uh, by Hollywood and well-meaning people that want us to have heroes uh, that they don't realize that, you know, look, when a, when a child's born into this world, they darn sure don't know uh, the things that you just described. They don't know about choice, uh, decisions, con uh, context, breadth, or connections. They don't know those things. Nope. And so thinking that you're going to find that unicorn that knows all of that just because they do without any work to learn it, to me, is just uh, silly. Well, you know what? It, I, I think it is silly, Steve. It's also cruel. <laughs> oh, it's that's cruel a better word. Yeah, to, to it take is. really otherwise good people and put them in, in the positions where those things are demanded of them, and suddenly they can't do it. Um, and uh, the reality is that um, you know nobody cuts your head open and says, "Okay, here's everything you need to, need to know about leading other people." And why we think and continue to take a gamble with people's lives by, by 50-50 rolling the dice, saying, well, you might make it, you might not, and setting otherwise wonderful people up to fail. Um, forget about the sociopaths who are horribly relationally or the, the cowards who can't make hard choices or the, you know, the intellectually lazy who don't want to learn. You know, sure, there's some of those who somehow escape the, the eyes of good HR people and they rise up and they shouldn't. But that's not, that's not the vast majority of the people failing. The vast majority of the people who are falling off the cliff are ones who we all said, wow, they have high potential. Wow, they're not the top of our nine bucks. Wow, well, they're going to go the distance. We should really put a lot of money behind them and keep them. And they went from being wonderful to suddenly being disasters within a year. And yeah. then what's the classic label? Well, they just weren't a good fit. Right. right? Th that's we have the a, easy we, way out, isn't it? Yeah, rather than saying, maybe we help them screw up. <laughs> um, and uh, it's just, it, 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 is, it is maddening to watch organizations continue to put the landmines they do in front of people on the way up. It's a wonder any of them are succeeding when organizations do so much unwittingly, not intentionally, to set leaders up to fail. Well, actually, I, I think that in my experience has shown, you know, most organizations do un, unwittingly. Uh, put them up to fail. But I've also seen the other side too, where people will uh, take someone, they know darn well that, uh, that they haven't had any training, nobody's mentored them, nobody, they don't really understand what this real, really means. But they take the, the idea or the attitude that, look, I need a butt in the seat and this looks like the best, uh, best person I can put here and we'll hope that uh, they can work it out. Yep, it's it's a stretch assignment. So you know, it's a, it's a step up, but they're yep. they're up to it, sure. <laughs> right, right. And we and we and we put them off, and then we kick them off the cliff. And I, I agree, and I think it's time to stop that. And I thank you for sharing what what really is the secret. I mean, it, it, you've got to master these areas. Uh, it, none of them are overly complex. There's not anything that you've talked about that. A person that has ambition and has a little discipline, uh, even a modicum of, of uh, intellect, can figure out how to do these things. And, and, and that's the truth, Steve. The, the trick for us was, it's, we, I see it as one thing, not four, right? right? Because you really can't, as an example, be contextually intelligent if you haven't got the relationships to do it. 
That's true. You can't really have breadth and work the seams unless you know how to prioritize where you're going to make your investments with choices. So every one of them works highly interdependent with the others. So it's really the truth becomes how do you become good at all four of them at the same time and let them work interdependently and not treat them as four competencies because then you, 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 don't, you, don't, you miss the part about how, how they work in concert. Um, but I totally agree. If we, if we began at somebody's very first individual contributor role or even their very first supervisory opportunity, instilling these four muscles into them at every level of the organization, when they got to the opportunity where they could take on a senior role, they'd be ready. I totally agree. I, I, I'm uh, thankful that uh, when I started out, even as a teenager, I had business successful business people that mentored me and helped me understand that I, I really was pretty naive and stupid, and they, they had to help me get to that point. And uh, I know it doesn't happen today. And uh, you mentioned connections because, you know, people, let, let's talk about the people aspect of this because I, I think that there, my, my, my personal experience is that where, where I see executives, uh, really the two muscles they have uh, struggle with are decision-making, you know, finding out that choice that we talked about and then connections and in particular with people. They, they have uh, this idea uh, that I, I, I think uh, I read one of the things that you had written uh, that they have to be 100% fair to everybody. Tell us what's wrong with that. Well, first of all, it's not true. <laughs> Second of all, even if, even if you wanted to do, even if you wanted to, you couldn't do it. But I think, but come on, Ron. Those, I mean, the, the world tells you you got to be a hundred percent fair. Yeah, and so the interesting challenge about fairness um, that I think what leaders really, what what people followers really want is not don't ever give me bad news and make sure I, it's it's not equality, it's equity, right? Say that so, again, because I think you're a hundred percent right. It's let's, not let's equality; sure it's, ec- it's equity. Meaning, um, I, I can, you can disappoint me. There are sometimes I won't get my way. Um, but if I don't understand the criteria behind your choice, I'm going to make it up, and I'm going to ascribe motives to your choices or motives to the outcomes that may or may not be true. So if I don't know and I can't predict the apparatus with which you make your choices, um, then I'm going to assume I'm um, I'm screwed. Right. Absolutely. So, uh, and so the, 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 uh, the other challenge becomes we also know from lots of other research that a sense of unfairness that goes, so organizational injustices, right? So if, for example, I know there's a compensation system that's fickle and I see rewards being doled out uh, apart from meritocracy, or I see favoritism, I see you have a, fair, you have a person you lean on more than me, and I don't know why. Any time I begin to sense unfairness, that's the, that's the ethical Petri dish. That's where the fungus starts to grow that sets the stage for unethical choices. Because the minute I feel wronged, the minute organizational injustices are perpetuated, and I don't see you using your role to right them, I feel entitled. So screw it. If, if it's every man for himself, I'm just going to take. And so if you look at, you know, look at the Wells Fargo, you can look back at some of these major ethical disasters, and you're going to find years before the seeds were sown, with some sense of contradiction or injustice or unfairness that was systemic, that a leader didn't address or ignored or perpetuated, um, 
And so how a leader arbitrates. So here's why you're not getting your way. Here's why I didn't give you the resources. Here's why I went to this person. If you can explain it and, ju- and, 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 it, and it was done equitably, it doesn't have to be equal. But if you can't explain it or you choose not to explain it, or it really is arbitrary or capricious um, or whimsical, um, expect people to make you pay. That is well said, Ron. And I, I think it's 100% right. Uh, because people, uh, it, it's not that everybody uh, wants to be treated the same. They know every job is not the same. They know some jobs are at that particular point in time in the company incredibly difficult and, and are going to require more attention, more resources. But you've got to be equitable in your decision-making and, and uh, your treatment of each one, and the whole team has to know exactly what you're doing. Right. And that's exhausting to do. Leaders don't forget that they're required to lead out loud. They're required to be not, not completely transparent, but certainly transparent enough that they're predictable. Yeah, right? absolutely. I, I, I love the way you said that because I firmly believe that uh, the, the best bosses are the ones that are the most predictable, but they're predictable in doing very good things. Yeah. That's awesome. Very, very cool. So it, for those that are, are listening today, uh, you know, I, I know we're, we're only going to have a few minutes together and I want to give you an opportunity to share how uh, people that want to know more about the work that you do with companies, why don't you share how people could uh, easily connect with you? That's great, Steve. So I'd love to keep chatting with anybody who, you know, folks have, have more interest in us. You can come visit us at www.navalent. Where you'll find uh, we have a great magazine, a quarterly magazine. We'd love to have you subscribe to for free, and we write about all kinds of organizational leadership challenges. Um, we have a great virtual summit coming up, a conference that we're hosting with a great list of A-listers, speakers, and thought leaders in March called "Leading Through Turbulence." So keep an eye out for that. If you come to www.navalent.com/transformation, we have a free ebook for you um, that you get. Uh, that's our sort of our look uh, at how to lead transformation in organizations. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun resource. can give you some great guidance on how you would plot the course for a change. So come, come visit us at the website. You can also follow me at Twitter on at Ron Carucci. Um, also um, hang out on LinkedIn a lot, so come visit us there. But we'd love to stay in connection and keep chatting. That's awesome, Ron. And uh, for those of you that happen to be exercising right now while we're talking, uh, I'll make sure <laughs> that we put – uh, links directly into this post to make it easy for you when you're done with your exercise to connect with Ron. So, uh, Ron, uh, as uh, kind of a, uh, a summary, I think what I'd like to do now, uh, there, there are people that are listening today that they know they have some of these issues and uh, they know that they need to work on them. What would be the, the top three action items that you would recommend that someone take right away uh, as after they've listened to us today, what should they do that would begin to make a difference in their own leadership career? Well, so leaders are, I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're notoriously bad observers of our own reality. So you shouldn't be making those choices on your own. So the first thing I would do is to have the courage to sit down with the people you lead and ask them, tell me how I can lead better how can I be a better colleague and leader to you? And, and just listen. I mean, 360s are great, 
But 360 should only be an excuse for a great conversation, not a replacement of a great conversation. So just sit and ask them. Establish a norm that says you want feedback from them. How can I do better? And then doggone it, if you get feedback, act upon it, right? Don't, you know. Right, and if you absolutely. get the whole, oh, no, you're fine. No, I don't, you know, and they just don't <laughs> want it. They're too afraid. Don't believe them. Um, there, there is something you're doing to irritate them, and they're all talking about it. So you should get in on the conversation. Um, and demonstrate that you can actually commit to improve so that when you have to ask them to step up their game, you've earned your right to do it. Awesome. <laughs> that is a great first step. Uh, go have a conversation and then take notes, listen, and then take action. I love yep. that. I love that. Uh, Ryan, uh, it, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Steve, it's a, I'm, I'm excited for anybody who's here as a leader trying to get better. This is lead, I mean, the one thing that the people never tell you about leadership is that if you're going to lead, you're going to suffer, right? Leadership yeah. is the ability, it's, it's the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. That's the, that's the work of what we do. And no one tells you that part. People get, look at the perks and the salaries and all the whatever like they think comes with it. And it be, it's a truly unforgiving and ruthless role. It's extraordinarily noble because of the impact you can have in the world and the differences you can make for lots of people. But it's not an easy role to play. And so for those of you listeners here to try and get better at it, my applause to you. Don't give up. We, the world needs better ones of us. And for those of you committed to being better, good for you. Well said, and thank you for that inspiration for all of us. My guest today has been Ron Carucci. He's co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, an author of Rising to Power. Ron, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your wisdom today. Uh, you've helped all of us kind of open up our mind and start to think differently, and we wish you continued success in everything that you do. Steve, my pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me.